HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This is Gastronomica, a Heritage Radio Network podcast. I'm your host for today, Bob Valgenti. This series is produced in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Gastronomica's spring issue, 23.1, now available online, explores authenticities, temporalities, and borders. Join us this month as we speak with authors about figs, fashion, and craft and as we explore the histories of chili eating and candy making. My guests this week are Lauren Crosslin Marr and Elizabeth Krauss. Betsy Krauss is a professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where she convenes the Ethnography Collective at UMass Amherst. She is the author of three books, A Crisis of Births, Population Politics and Family Making in Italy, published in 2005, Unraveled, A Weaver's Tale of Life Gone Modern, published in 2009, and Tight Knit, Global Families and the Social Life of Fast Fashion, published in 2018. Lauren Crosslin Marr is a postdoctoral researcher on the Jeep 3 project, which explores the application of CRISPR technology to agriculture. She received her PhD in anthropology from Washington University in St. Louis in 2020. Her research centers on foodways, agriculture, and technology. Thank you both for joining us and welcome to the show. Okay, so let's begin by giving our listeners a sense of your special section on authenticity in our latest issue. You entitle that special section, Theorizing Authenticity. And while we will certainly venture into some more theoretical spaces, the work in this section is really rooted in fieldwork and lived experiences. Could you share with us how you began thinking about this topic and the occasion that brought together this particular group of scholars? Absolutely. Um, So, yeah, like many special sections, uh, the road to publication was quite long. (laughs) 
one that actually started before COVID. Um, and this was really started in 2019. Um, I was finishing my dissertation and uh, Betsy was on my committee and uh, we had many conversations. And one of the things that we both found interesting was the idea of authenticity, which came up often in my work on halal certifications in Italy, um, because they were actually certifying heritage made in food Italy's for consumers in Muslim majority countries. So we had many, many conversations about this. Um, I had lots of questions, but I knew I couldn't answer them all in my dissertation. And it turned out that speaking with Betsy and others, they were also thinking about similar questions. Um, so originally, uh, I had planned uh, to pull together a session on authenticity at our annual meeting, the AAAs, the American Anthropological Association meetings in 2020. Of course, <laughs> something big happened, COVID, um, and the meetings were canceled. Uh, so, um, and I defended my dissertation in my bare feet in my living room <laughs> in my home in May 2020. So our worlds really looked a lot different. Um, and we were all, in addition to our interests in anthropology, we were, uh, in authenticity, we were also interested in the discipline of anthropology and when that looks like in a post COVID or, you know, COVID moment. Um, so, and, and what does authentic field work look like? So authenticity kind of came front and center, not just in our professional lives, but I think also in our personal lives. So somehow the topic felt a lot more relevant and, um, we finally presented in a hybrid format in 2021 at the AAAs in Baltimore. Um, and after the presentations, uh, Betsy and I, uh, who had we had both uh, co-organized um, the session, it really seemed like the themes spoke really well together and we were really interested in continuing the conversation. Um, like many of these special sections, we needed the buy-in, of course, from our panelists, and they were all really interested in, in going on this journey with us. So um, we ended up... Um, Almost four years after, we were struck by authenticity, um, getting together and, and working through this special section. So it was a long road, but uh, one that really, uh, I think, helped us think about authenticity in all these in myriad ways as we were also living through a pandemic. Yeah, the one thing that I would add is that working with Lauren has been amazing because sometimes these these concepts and these special issues, they're very organic. And I still remember Lauren appreciating my, something I had written in my, in my book. And that was that, uh, that there's a myth of continuity with the Renaissance. When you talk about the made in Italy, that so much of that sort of that power, that gravitas comes from what I've called the myth of continuity. And so that when people think about the Made in Italy as a brand, there's something connected to the Renaissance, even though it's been, there's not continuity. There, were, there was pe peasant poverty. There was uh, fascism. Right. And there was the, the post-war uh, growth. And so that was just really, really captured my interest to collaborate with Lauren and the conversations that we've been able to have uh, have been really, really uh, stimulating. Yeah, that's really true, Betsy, because those disjunctures we saw a lot in authenticity. I mean, there's this idea of 
you know, this kind of static understanding of time and place. And it really does feel um, analogous to your myth of continuity and fast fashion. So that was a really great kind of touch point for us to, to collaborate on. Well, it's it's one of those challenges when when we talk about authenticity. Uh, it's certainly helpful, I think, Betsy, that your research stretches beyond just the food realm because that helps to bring uh, you know, a much broader perspective into into how these questions are shaped. But I know when, for example, when I teach in my classes about uh, I teach food and philosophy, but when that question of authenticity comes up students often get excited because it's either an object of desire for them having some kind of authentic experience or they feel that there are authentic things that they can weigh in on whereas other topics might be a little bit out of their reach they certainly know what is authentic to them and perhaps what is authentic to their own cultural experience but can you say a little bit more about uh, the particularity of of Italy, uh, especially for this panel, because we all know when we think oftentimes of authentic Italian foods, you know, that irony of that continuity is that, well, most of these foods are foods that are a product of colonial expansion. They're new world foods that were brought to Italy and that only in the past 150, 200 years have become part of what we understand as Italian food. So can you Maybe comment, both of you, a little bit on the Italianness of this particular section on authenticity. Well, there are two things that I'm thinking of uh, with that question. It's, it's a wonderful question because it's amazing how rich it is when you talk about authenticity with students. Um, because I think they're just starting to understand that it, you know, it has a lot more features uh, that uh, maybe we can call into question. Um, but it, it's also desired. And, and that's one of the things that Betsy and I, when, when we talk about authenticity, just kind of offline together and theorizing authenticity, um, you know, we use authenticity and authentic often in our daily lives. And so it feels often that like, this is a real thing in the world. Um, and so, and I, and I think what Betsy and I really wanted to do in the, in the intro, in the introduction to this special section was highlight that there is some realness to this, you know, it's not just um, a, a product of colonialism, although that's important too, um, but thinking a little bit more broadly about uh, authenticity and its impact on our daily lives, as well as kind of this larger um, political economic question about where it comes from in this kind of historical lens. Um, authenticity, of course, is like the cultural stuff of economic life today, and, and Italy provides a really important example. Um, and so I think first kind of Italy is really been productive for all of the authors because that's where we all work and we see it all the time. In the introduction, we talk about how we often have family approach us and say things like, what did you eat? You know, this is the first thing that they want to ask us after our field work. Um, and we mentioned that we're good cultural students. So we often tell them about uh, the varying pastas, uh, the risottos, you know, those sorts of things that we're eating. Um, we rarely go into the halal hamburgers, the Chinese hot pot, <laughs> which we also consumed uh, and consume uh, quite a bit of. Um, and so uh, in Italy specifically, um, I think we can kind of trace this back to the idea of a, a geographical indications, um, which we call GIs in the introduction. Um, you know, the, it's essentially the global symbol used to identify a product. Um, kind of created by uh, the WIPO and the EU really has a, a really important stake in this as well. And it's really, um, as the EU puts it, 
quality, reputation, or other such characteristics that relate to its geographical origin. So this connection between place and production um, was a long process, um, fairly long, and one that was constructed that took a lot of time and convincing. Um, this was really a top-down targeted attempt to create a place to production, which really wasn't easy. Um, and uh, so I think there's, you know, sort of... Uh, a reason that this was such an important time and moment, and I think we can go into that certainly later, but Italy has really become one of the most important places where GIs have been con connected to product and uh, very successfully, um, you know, as we show in the introduction, um, we see these GIs on uh, a number of products in the grocery store and here in the United States, Canada, and elsewhere outside of Italy. So it's a powerful symbol and one that we consume, um, I would say, almost on a daily basis. So one of the great features uh, about these essays mm -hmm. is that on the one hand, we have the IGs, which give that bureaucratic uh, and official distinction to the notion of authenticity. But also in the fieldwork that's conducted in these, in these essays, we see that the Italian language itself is offering up various alternatives to the concept of authenticity. So I'm wondering perhaps if you could speak to the way the language is moving us beyond, in some sense, the limits of the discourse on authenticity. One of the things that we really wanted to highlight was exactly that, because I think one of the most important ways that we can grapple with authenticity is to think about um, not beyond this kind of critical lens of it doesn't exist or it's constructed. Um, because again, it's pretty, it's real. <laughs> People use it for their livelihood, especially all of the artisanal producers we meet in Italy. Um, and they navigate it in many different ways. So they use um, concepts of authenticity, or maybe we could say authentic narratives, um, and they apply different words, qualità, uh, nostrano, um, and these words are really important in staking claims about both their work um, and their personal lives and their communities. Um, so it's also thinking beyond the boundaries, as you say, of this sort of top-down institutional lens, um, which they also play. I mean, everybody kind of has to play that game as well. Um, but when it comes to the way that they're actually producing this, um, it's much more, um, it's sort of much more expansive. And that's one of the things we also wanted to mention is um, there's some issues, of course, when we talk about the development of something like GIs um, and the the issues of, of where it comes from um, uh, and who it includes and who it doesn't. Those are still important questions, but then it's also important to understand how people use this uh, in their daily lives. So we have a number of authors of the special section uh, who I really have been so excited um, by the scholarship that's, that's here, um, some really big authors um, that have contributed to this question in, in many different ways. Um, so we are all anthropologists who work in Italy because I think this is a really productive place to look at these questions. Um, for uh, her, our, her um, article, Julian Cavanaugh uh, investigates who is absent and who is exclu excluded in salami production in Bergamo. And we actually learned that it's uh, a little bit more complicated uh, than some of the boundaries we've seen before, um, not just along immigration lines, which exist as well, but then also along um, just access to capital, social capital, cultural capital, and financial capital. Um, 
And in uh, her article, Amanda Hilton looks at olive oil uh, in Sicily. And this is a really wonderful take on looking at the differing claims to authenticity, looks for both, how this looks for both the product and the producer. And Cristina Grassini uh, looks at stracatunt cheese, excuse me, stracatunt cheese in the region of Lombardy to understand um, really guardianship. And all of these have different terms um, as sort of new forms of authenticity. And of course, Betsy, who's joining us, I won't speak for her, but she's looking at fig growers in Tuscany to think about authentic possibilities. And when we pulled this special section together, we were really interested and and we sort of laughed about, as Betsy mentioned, um, that actually all of these, I think she said it best when she said all of these foods we look at in this issue, salami, cheese, olive oil, and figs, make up an almost complete Italian merenda or snack. So we were just missing the bread, um, but maybe that's for another other place. Yes, certainly. And and Betsy, maybe this is a place where you can tell us a little bit about your specific work because, you know, in that balance between the global markets and the official designations and then that really hyper local language that's being used to describe those things stands the individual producer who in many ways embodies this, this tension between the global and the local. So can you tell us a little bit how in your essay on slow figs and fast fashion, um, that individual producer, you know, in many ways becomes the, the symbol for all of the issues that you're discussing in these essays. Sure. Yeah, I want to just say that I didn't grow up eating figs, uh, but supply chains are in my blood. Uh, my dad invented tab lube, which is a lubricant that is, it, it, it lubricates the machines that punch out pull tabs on beverage cans. So I grew up just thinking about where stuff comes from. And, and so, yeah, so that kind of got me into, into the um, just working on, on the, whether it was the, the fashion, the fast fashion, or now the figs that was really kind of felt kind of a natural place to put my energies. Can I ask you, there was something that you, yeah, there actually a really wonderful line in your essay um, and you capture your, your entire argument nicely and you say to quote, that fig producers straddle discipline and improvisation as they engage in authentic practices, yet they also demonstrate a spirited anarchical skepticism towards authenticity. So could you say a little bit more about this? It's almost a balancing act, right? Between discipline and improvisation, or I think as many of us feel in this more academic discourse about authenticity, both both trying to find a way to embrace authenticity, but also critique it. Yeah. I feel like the character of uh, the fig producer Ciro Petrarchi is uh, really a great example of that kind of balancing of discipline and improvisation. And I just want to paint a picture of Ciro. He's a really famous uh, fig producer, uh, tall, thin, energetic, full of passion. And I met him, just the context of of meeting Ciro and his whole approach, I think goes a long way to explaining and understanding 
this this kind of tension and how local food producers kind of navigate this tension. So I this mover and shaker in this bio district, which is a it's a uh, an organization and association, Montalbano Bio District, that is fighting against toxic capitalism and attempting to ban certain certain chemicals. Uh, Monsanto produced chemicals in their agricultural territory. So uh, this Rosalba, she picks me up in the center of Prato. It's very chaotic there. We drive across the the sprawling industrial district of Macroloto in Prato. And then at a certain point, you can see these verdant hills of Montalbano. And so we're we're heading up there. And I've lived in this area um, off and on since I was doing my field work in in some of the hill towns there and the and some of the the townships uh, in in uh, the nineties and uh, at the time it was really a sweater production zone and so anyway we go up into the hills and and we go on this this narrow uh, little mountain sort of road that's one way and it's it's actually two way and one lane it's a big drop off into an olive grove and then under this stone uh narrow passageway finally up the last slope to the top of the mountain uh where where Ciro lives and we go into this stone building and there's Ciro and he's got these handmade baskets and these various varieties of dried figs and dried persimmons and all these different products he makes. And, and as he started to, to talk and, and, you know, I, I was asking him, you know, how, how did you get into growing figs? And, and he said, well, it was like fulmine, which fulmine in Italian is like uh, lightning striking, or you can be like, can be love. It can be, uh, it can be like a light bulb going off. And, as he as he started to tell me about this, he 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 said, "Well, it was it was this this moment where he had he had returned to the the land, and um, after some years, and he he noticed on the the family land that there were there were there was not just the one kind of fig tree, the one variety, the dotato, which is used for making the you know certified dried figs, the historic dried figs of Carmignano. There were like twenty varieties, and he's like, "Well, somebody must have, you know, planted all of these different varieties for a reason." So I need to be doing something with these as well as making the the the, the traditional dried figs of Carmignano that have a certain that are in that part of the slow food presidio and that have a series of protocols you have to use for them to get the producer label. So he's doing both of these kinds of activities. And so I think the way that he is straddling improvisation and as well as, as tradition is just a great example. I mean, neither that just because he's being creative doesn't mean that's inauthentic, right? It just, isn't going to get the same label as those certain designated dried figs. It seems that's one of the wonderful things about your work. And I think that in many ways, your experience uh, parallels uh, the, you know, the experience that you were witnessing in that field of production, that in the same way that uh, the lightning struck the fig grower, it seems that also on, on this panel and on this discourse on authenticity, you were struck by the very way 
that as you get deep into the search for that authentic thing, it gives its own antidote. It, it gives you the resistance that you're looking for because you realize that that thing that everyone is trying to capture, that truth that everyone is after, is going to be much more plural and much more multi-form than we expect at first. And that in a certain sense is frustrating, but it's also why this topic of authenticity is, is so wonderful uh, to discuss. So with that in mind, why don't we take a quick break and then we'll return to dive into some of those thornier issues with authenticity. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we're back. This is Gastronomica on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Bob Valgenti speaking today with Lauren Crossland Marr and Betsy Krauss about their special section on authenticity, which appears in the latest issue of Gastronomica, now available online. So let's resume with a further thought about fig production and then see if we can dive into some of the theoretical and political complexities of authenticity. So this was a num another wonderful idea that you had in your essay, Betsy, uh, where you uh, point out that especially with heritage products, authenticity, quote, is tasked with performing the work of reconciliation. In other words, producers feel compelled to reconcile their local practices with the pressures of global markets. Could you tell us a little bit more about this paradox embodied by the artisan producer uh, and what this work of reconciliation might be. Yeah, I think that the work of reconciliation is a lot about the way that producers are sandwiched between what we might call and what we have long called different modes of production. So they are constantly trying to negotiate these different relationships. So in the the they they do that through, for example, the the fig producers are part of this bio district, which has started a solidarity uh, a solidarity distribution group. 
And so this these are these are local markets that are not capitalists. They're individual, they're individual growers who are selling to individuals. And so this kind of relationship is is even though money is exchanged, it's much more similar to it, we might call it a neo-peasant economy. It's it has the relationships relationships of gift principles, right? Of reciprocity. The gift principle is to the obligation to give, the obligation to receive and reciprocate. So those are very deep, deeply ingrained. And at the same time, these, these producers are, many of them had relatives, uh, fathers, grandparents, even themselves when they were children, who were part of the sharecropping system in Tuscany that lasted up until the 70s, Okay, the mezzadria system, and so that the that these um, and and under under fascism, you know, Mussolini reinforced this this sharecropping system because he was supporting the elite class. That's part of what fascism has done and continues to do. And so, in these um, historic, I consulted the, uh, years ago, I consulted this archive, this photography archive that had photographs from the Paul Schirmauer, uh collection from the 1930s. He was an ethnologist and he documented peasant life. And in one of the photos, there are a series of photos, there are dried figs outside this building on these reed kind of racks. And on the side of the building, is this portrait of Mussolini sort of staring down at these at at you know at the villagers very similar if you've seen the new Pinocchio by Guillermo del Toro there are similar images of Mussolini uh, painted on the the villager you know village walls you know like the villagers are under surveillance right so so it is this um, this kind of strong memory of the past, these neo-peasants, if we may call them that, they are often called that in the literature, that they are negotiating these, these, different, um, these different systems. And it's a really important reminder of how capitalism is less monolithic than we think it is. It is the dominant system, but it is not, you know, the only system. And so, these these small scale artisanal producers they are you know they're they're kind of doing um involved in a kind of a quiet revolution if you will against not only um you know against toxic capitalism they're they're really they're land stewards they're fighting climate change you know whether it comes in the form of drought or these invasive weevils yeah so i mean so this is a wonderful picture of one of the ways that we could say that um, this work, these, these, for lack of a better term, authentic modes of production offer some kind of resistance. But maybe, Lauren, you could, could you also comment a little bit on how you're also trying to reconcile or maybe in some ways reform the concept of authenticity itself as you describe it in in the introduction you're creating a kind of uh analytic of authenticity so how does that you know that this concept in a certain way get revived and resuscitated 
Absolutely. Um, I want to just actually pull a quote from what, uh, what Betsy's article, she talks about, um, she says, Chef David Chang even refers to authenticity as stifling and a burden. And I think many of us, uh, maybe chefs as well as academics, uh, find authenticity somewhat constraining. And I think um, Betsy's example of Ciro is a beautiful one to show that um, there's also creativity there, or there can be. Um, you know, I think for the way that we wanted to kind of theorize authenticity was um, it's been looked at in the past in, in many ways, and many authors contribute to our thinking. Um, but certainly the idea is often that uh, authenticity um, creates boundaries of who can participate and who can't. And I think that's a really important point, but it's not the only point. Uh, we wanted to expand notions of authenticity, especially as we see it in food, um, beyond this kind of who is and who isn't included. Um, so, so, but also keeping in mind uh, that that is an important contribution. Um, so this is kind of sticky <laughs> when you're trying to build out uh, a theory of authenticity, particularly in food, uh, because there are many, not just many uses, but uh, we navigate it in so many ways. Um, and, and, and so it's, it also makes it very productive. Uh, as we say in the introduction, uh, these questions, you know, we may not have answers to them, but they have productive yields. And so maybe looking at those uh, questions are productive and in themselves. Um, and so, yeah, I think often authors before us saw authenticity, um, kind of expanded this to think about authenticity, not necessarily opposed to authentic inauthenticity, but built within the same process. So that was the starting point for us to think about um, not just authenticity as something that's contrasted to inauthentic or in inauthenticity in food, but something that um, is built within the same process. Um, actually, one of my colleagues, uh, Zach Nowak, who Betsy and I both know, um, his work in Perugia, Italy, actually provides a really great example of this. Um, as many, maybe many of your uh, listeners will know, um, um, but actually in, in Italy, there was a political movement in a few towns to um, ban kebab sellers from city centers. Um, and the, the motivation here was to create authentic experiences for tourists, right? Um, as if kebab makers are not part of this authentic experience. And so um, as they're kind of creating, as politicians are creating these sort of city zones, right? City center zones. Uh, they're saying what is authentic as well as what they deem inauthentic. So that's a good example of kind of building within the same process, both of these concepts. But we see actually with the artisanal producer, if we sort of go a little bit, you know, at, the, at, the, at a lower kind of level and how people are navigating these big questions, um, we have much more nuanced vision of authenticity. So it's not just this inauthentic versus authentic. There's creativity. Um, there's navigating these different modes of production, as Betsy, as Betsy was saying. So um, and authenticity is, is a way for many of these uh, producers who are sandwiched between these global processes in really precarious ways. I mean, Betsy just mentioned the bull weevil in her or in her um, in her field work. And this is, you know, devastating for many of these uh, producers. And so we can see that really what they're doing uh, at the same time is supporting community and what we feel like are these OPEC kind of global economy, economic kind of uh, arenas, um, which is typified by mass production. So they're saying we're not mass produced, right? We're creative. We're doing this thing, um, you know, for for our community to, to kind of create and support it, as well as to support, um, you know, these long histories as they've been developed. 
Um, of course, that doesn't mean that we have to throw everything out with, with kind of thinking this way. We can also include um, thinking about what certain bodies in an economy can produce authenticity. And as we show, you know, rarely this, uh, this applies to people like the kebab makers we, we, we highlight and migrant labor as well, uh, as we see in Jillian Cavanaugh's uh, piece which is necessary to keep kind of this artisanal production running. So there, there are a lot of contradictions and tensions. And I think, again, that's, you know, echoing uh, Betsy, that's really productive to think about capitalism beyond this kind of top-down economic way of, of, of life um, and really thinking about the tensions and those sort of sticky questions of participating in such economies um, that, that produce interesting yields. So this is... Perhaps as a way of maybe wrapping up our discussion today, and I'll give you both a chance to maybe respond uh, to this final question. But as you speak here of production and you speak of authenticity as a construct, but a construct here in a potentially positive sense, along with all of its negative baggage, you you offer an alternative. You cite uh, Regina Bendix's seminal work, uh, and she says that her goal is to remove authenticity from the vocabulary of the emerging global script. But it seems that you've cast a slightly different narrative here for authenticity. And so I'm wondering if in, in our final moments, you can perhaps uh, give us a picture of what authenticity might, or perhaps from an ethical standpoint, should look like in the future. One associated perhaps not with the gaze of the anthropologist or the objective observer, but perhaps one that gives voice and witness to all of those producers and populations uh, that are in the midst of that, that kind of paradox that we mentioned before. So I'm wondering if each of you can perhaps uh, leave us with a thought about what this future of authenticity might look like. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the world can be such a confusing and overwhelming kind of place. And and so I think what we've been really trying to do is sort of cook authenticity and get away from the binary of, you know, authentic or inauthentic and really see what's going on inside of these 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 processes these dynamics uh and so i i think the world is also an awe inspiring place you know figs inspire awe they inspire curiosity they inspire stewardship uh at the same time that we didn't really talk about the Chinese immigrants who are working in the made in Italy, right, in those industrial districts. But I talk about that in the article. And so that's a, um, I think that the the future needs to think about uh, these, think deeply about um, these, the ways in which authenticity, if we're going to make these claims, can be, um, you know, more inclusive, less extractive, something equitable and and just. So that's I think the the hope here in 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 cooking authenticity. I love that. Yeah, Betsy, I think you you really summed it up beautifully. Um, yeah, and inclusivity I think is is also important. Um, you know, as I mentioned, a few examples, but. 
um, especially going back to kind of these top-down uh, institutions like uh, GIs, um, we see one of the things we point out in the article is um, we find GIs primarily from Europe, but on the continent of Africa, um, we only have 0.001% um, come from the continent of Africa. And so we need to maybe be a little bit more critical as we, these kind of scale up and become institutionalized um, who is included and who is excluded? I think that's a very valid question. Um, and then see how people are actually navigating it sort of on the ground. And so anthropology provides a great lens for that because we can do both. <laughs> we also straddle both pretty often. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think, but I, I loved uh, the equitable future of, of, um, of authenticity as we sort of cook it. I think we can look at this in both both ways and uh, and provide some really interesting critiques, but then also uh, understand how people are are navigating it, and and that's also incredibly important as we think about because um, I don't think it's going away. You know, I think uh, Regina Bendex's wonderful point is that she hopes that it won't be part of the emerging global skip, uh, script, but I think we are there. <laughs> I don't think we we lost that. I think I think it it is sort of uh, now sort of everywhere. Um, so just being a little bit more cognizant and and thinking a little bit more broadly. And certainly uh, what you've contributed to Gastronomica helps us uh, to think along those lines. So I want to thank you both for this uh, wonderful opportunity and for joining us. Listeners can read this set of essays in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, issue 23.1. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. We'll be back next week to speak with author Victor Valle on the po poetics of Chile. Subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated on our newest episodes. And on behalf of the Gastronomica Editorial Collective, thank you for joining us. The Gastronomica podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.